you get treated the same as I treat everyone else. <laughs> this is a the scientist Wartsonal. Should that should be the new name for the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, you're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a scientist, we get to know him, we, we ask him a few questions, you know, you, you know the drill. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by invertebrate zoologist, behavioral ecologist, and conflict ecologist, <laughs> Matthew Palbert. Matt! Hello, how's it going? <laughs> Good, I have to make sure I don't call you Bulby. On the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, Matthew, Dr. Matthew. Dr. Bulby's fine. Dr. Yeah. Dr. Bulby. Uh, That's what my students call me. Really? <laughs> Is that when you get famous and you replace Dr. Carl? Dr. Bulby? Yeah, that's right. It's the kind of respect they give me. <laughs> <laughs> so, true or false, Dr. Bulby, mm-hmm. did you invent the phrase conflict ecology? <laughs> Um, possibly. <laughs> Good. I think, I think it's almost at the top of the search now when you put it in. Because right. I think I've put it in so many times myself. <laughs> <laughs> Have you gotten it into a paper yet with, with your name on it? Uh, not as yet, no, but I'm working on it. Um, I think the other website that actually has something bearing talks about the ecology of war. So I'm trying to <laughs> I'm trying to outdo that site. Hopefully I can. Wait, is that a, a war-based site or an ecology-based site? It's a war-based site. Okay. So, yeah, I, I haven't looked at it to actually see what it's about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you... Yeah. But my, mine's about looking at the behavioral and ecological solutions that animals use to avoid conflict. So... So when we're just yeah. talking about animal conflict, animal fighting, what's what makes yeah, what defines anim- conflict? Animal fighting, but also in terms of mostly predator-prey interactions. So where um, animals are trying to avoid being eaten, mm-hmm. so they're trying to avoid the prospect of you know, coming up against a lion or mm-hmm. those big things, or predators actually trying to induce prey into becoming food. Um, but also kind of extends to the struggle that animals may actually have as they're growing up through their lives. So it can extend to not just conflict between other organisms, but actually conflict in terms of environmental change or the conditions mm. not but becoming not so good um, mm. and then having to deal with that. Um, and then what consequence that actually has for, for the adults later on. Yeah. And so lots of the stuff you're working on is how signals are involved in these interactions. So you're advertising to Um, say predators to stay away or something, but it's not necessarily all about information processing, right? No, not necessarily, no. Um, It's more, I kind of like systems that illustrate how they change at different stages of their life. Mm. and what actually influences those changes. Mm. So you have some animals that will have the same, they might have the same strategy all the way through their lives. And then you'll have a whole suite of other animals that actually change the strategies that they use to defend themselves, say, against a predator at different stages. Mm. So why is it that you have these, this dichotomy between you know, some animals actually not having to change their strategy, it's just effective all the way through. Mm. And then you have these other ones that, that have to have different strategies um, and I don't think that's really been investigated so much a lot of a lot of research in our field is really focused primarily on interactions between adults mm. they don't necessarily take into account as much what's happening in the juvenile stages and and how that actually may have an impact later on um, so yeah I'm quite interested in that and you know some of the animals that I work on have very different strategies to their adults what, um, what we were talking about strategy. What, what do we mean by strategy? Uh, so, strategy can be used in lots of different ways, but we consider did. it, say, different tactics could be yeah. a, a different thing. But not um, necessarily, like, I'm thinking behavioral strategies. It's not like these animals are sitting there thinking, all right, this is how I'm going to oh, no. get out of this situation. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> Evolutionary driven, yes. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, in some cases it can be. I mean, if you think about uh, animals that flee um, mm. 
and you can have some animals that will make a decision on which direction they they flee depending on what predator is approaching them. Yeah. Um, and they may make those characteristics not necessarily on recognizing the predator, but recognizing some attributes that the predator displays as it's, as it's approaching. Yeah. Um, so in those those circumstances, they they do have different strategies depending on what predator is approaching them. But I'm sort of more talking about um, animals that uh, you know. Let's just think about color strategies. Um, there's lots of different ways in which animals use color to avoid being eaten by a predator. Mm. And the most classic one, of course, is background matching, mm. uh, which is also known as crypsis, where an animal resembles some component of its background to make it difficult for a predator to see it. Mm. And that strategy is great, and it's used by lots of animals. One of the biggest issues with that strategy, of course, is that as soon as you move, you move away from that patch that you look like, and yeah. so you become more distinctive. And there's a lot of theories around that um, suggest that as animals get bigger, um, they may need to forage more because they need to resource themselves more as they're getting bigger, mm -hmm. or as they're becoming an adult, they need to find a mate. Yeah. So there's crypsis can be a restrictive strategy because it effectively um, reduces your capacity to move around. Yeah. So it's not as effective. So if that's the case, then other strategies might be important. So things like uh, aposematicism, which is also called warning coloration. Mm. And that's one of those cool strategies where being bright and beautiful is actually protective, even though it may seem like they're very obvious to see. Mm. You think they'd be an obvious target. But in those cases, the animals are often uh, defended in some way. A lot of them are defended, for instance, with chemicals that may be distasteful or even toxic mm. to some degree. And so a predator will learn to avoid those uh, animals by recognizing or associating that color with that distastefulness. Mm. I mean, a classic example might be, say, a butterfly yeah. Which at its caterpillar stage is a mottled brine twig looking thing. Yeah. Once it then turns into an adult, it's pointless to look like a twig because you're going to be floating around in midair flapping yeah. about. So you yeah. switch to a different strategy. Yeah. And uh, even before that, um, swallowtail butterflies, for instance, they, they have um, the early in star stages, they're poo mimics. So they actually <laughs> have this black and white model to. Um, appearance, which yeah. is like a bird dropping on a, a yeah. plant. And then they may go through a stage where they're kind of uh, cryptic kind of colorations. Maybe their their patterns are broken up, mm. so the outline's hard to see. But then as they get bigger, of course, they need more food, so they need to move around a bit more. Mm. And that's when they may start to have colors, um, or they may have warning displays, you know, mm. the classic really cool one of course is the ones that the snake-headed caterpillars the ones that <laughs> you know they um they bulge up when they're attacked by a predator and they've got big bulging eyes that look like a snake yeah to scare something away so those are kind of examples just in the caterpillars and the juveniles where yeah. they're switching they're using different strategies or different tactics mm. throughout and then you could argue that the combination of all those things together is actually just one strategy. Yeah. You know, the combination of those. And that that really hasn't been explored that much. And what's yeah. the consequence of that? So in that example, it's not just that. As a swallowtail caterpillar grows, it starts off looking like a you know, bird dropping. Mm. It's not just that it grows beyond the size of what an average bird dropping would be. It's also interacting with the fact that it has to move more. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. probably a combination of both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's why we don't have you know, elephants that look like twigs. Yes. It's the wrong, wrong context. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, if they stand still, they're really hard to see when they're behind a tree, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure I read some old natural history book where they hypothesized that giraffes mimic tree trunks. Oh, and yeah. hippos mimic rocks and water and well, way out their stuff like it's, that. It's funny, you know, because I've I've worked with rhinos in the past, and I can be 
you can be really close to a rhino without actually seeing it. Hmm. So if the animals don't actually move and there's just a little bit of bush in front of you, they're just not contrasting enough with the background to actually yeah. be able to see. And so it's amazing how close you can be to a rhino before <laughs> it gets annoyed at you and it starts, you know, <laughs> huffing at you. Um, yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, I've got the odd photo where I've got a photo of a rhino that's only a couple of metres away in a bush mm. and people can't see it in the, the photo. You know, it's right there. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's all about scale, isn't it? Mm. So, um so, mentioning rhinos, so you've, yep. you've had this. So right now in your conflict ecology lab, you've you're working on bugs and yep. other insects and things like that. Before this, you've done all sorts of stuff. You've worked at a museum, with, mm-hmm. and I know you you had this crazy work experience in Africa. Yep. So, has you know making observations like you know, your rhino stories and that sort of stuff actually contributed to forming this research niche you have no uh, but avoiding conflict yeah or is this a recent research interest well i think it's i think it's more of a case that i've i've done a lot of things that kind of fit in fit into this category mm. so i i sort of sat down one day and i thought how can i actually put all the things the different things that i've done under one umbrella how's it kind of fit and i mm. kind of realize that they're all about some kind of you know adverse interaction with some environmental factor or yeah. other animals um and you know in the case of rhinos that the adverse really impact is humans mm. you know that's the that's the real deal with them and how they actually deal with that so yeah i mean that's kind of how it sort of formed um in terms of working with invertebrates which is i suspect is where this is going to some degree Invertebrates is one of those, it's the great taxa to work with because it's the most easiest group to become a world expert in. <laughs> because there's so little that's actually been done. You yeah. know, there's so many species that haven't even been described yet, let alone any behavior associated yeah. with it. So if you actually want to become a world expert very quickly, invertebrates are the way to go because it's, there's so, many, so much unknown yeah. associated with them. I hear velvet worms yeah. are up for grabs. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think someone might have taken those oh, a little bit earlier. Didn't, no. didn't the Null Tate and those guys took their... <laughs> He's not doing stuff anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. I think, I, think it's, I think it's time to actually reinvigorate the velvet worm research. <laughs> <laughs> peanut worms. I'm pretty sure peanut worms are free if anyone wants them. <laughs> um, yeah. So I mean that's that's kind of cool thing, and then I also work on frogs when I when I can. Mm. But I've always described frogs as as an invertebrate with a backbone, anyway. So because <laughs> they're honorary, they are. Yeah, they've lost a lot of bones. They're doing their best <laughs> to try. <fit. laughs> that's right. So, um, but yeah, that, I mean that's, that's something that you, you have to do at some stage in your scientific career, right? You have to convince sounds terrible you have to convince people there's there's some sort of theme mm. to what you're doing i mean if you start off in science you yep you just sort of go with it and you jump on whatever opportunities uh, yeah. present themselves and then someone turns around to you and says all right what's your what's your research ethos what's your area yeah, yeah i mean the reality is that you know i'd love to work on anything and yeah. i do get distracted in that way but in order to to build a research profile, you do actually have to have a program that seems cohesive and that you're going in a certain direction. Yeah. And I think that's, so it's kind of important to sit down and think about, okay, how do these bits go together and what what am I actually trying to achieve by, if I put these bits and pieces together? Mm-hmm. Um, and that takes quite a bit to do. I don't think it's necessarily inherent to everybody. Yeah. yeah I think I'm still trying to work it out myself. So. <laughs> well, I mean, you're, you're, <laughs> You've had a long and varied career. Yeah. <laughs> Have you had other niches along the way? Is this just the most um, recent manifestation of... Yeah, I, I mean, my, my whole drive is I love natural history. Mm. I love diversity. I love trying to understand why it is we have so many cool things. Mm. That, that's really been the driving factor for, for a long time. And so pretty much all the things that I've done 
um, it hasn't really mattered too much what taxa it is, just as long as I have some involvement, mm. really close interaction with them and, and get to see them in, you know, I've seen so many cool stuff where I've, where I've either been the only person there or mm. a few other people have been there and yeah. I'm the only person that's kind of seen it, you know, and it's, yeah. it's exciting. It's like, to some degree, you know, in the olden days where they had explorers and explorers would go to new lands mm. and that would have been pretty exciting times to actually experience these places for the first time. Yeah. You know, nowadays that's not as big a thing because, you know, we can transport to lots of places. In science, we effectively are explorers each day. We have opportunities to be able to actually see things or experience things that no one else has done before mm. and be the first person to to observe that behavior or, you know, and that's, that's pretty exciting to be able to then convey that to other people. Yeah. Um, and if you can manage to convince other people that what you've seen is exciting, <laughs> it's also nice to have them enthused at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so, and that's, and that's not the easiest to challenge, I think, for some of the things that, you know, we, we certainly do. Mm. Um, I mean, you hear that sentiment a lot from scientists, the idea that Maybe we were born in the wrong era. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're, we're too... What, what's the saying? It's, you know, too born too late to explore the seas, too early to explore the stars. It's a really sad saying. <laughs> so it's, we have to find joy in, in the things that are... I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm I mean, understating the importance of exploring what's right in front of us yeah. that we don't understand. Yeah, and it's, that's true. Um, but there's still a large opportunity to be able to explore yeah, many places. There's many places in the world still that really hasn't been, haven't been looked at very mm. much. Um, and there's, you know, in Australia, I think it's something like only... 15 or 20 percent of it's been estimated around that of invertebrates that actually have a name in yeah. Australia <laughs> so you know you've got that situation who knows what's out there and what's the and the what can then follow on from that you know there's lots of great examples in recent times where people have been looking at natural systems to get answers to to problems that humans are facing now in terms of medicines and mm. you know technologies and things like that um so there's all that there's always that capacity that if you discover something that can make a real difference in that regard mm. um it's a little bit i know it's a little bit airy fairy <laughs> to some degree <laughs> um but you know it's a kind of driving it's kind of driving force for most of us i think that quest to actually find out or discover something new hmm. um, it is a shame that you can't make that research career niche based on exploration you know you, you can't start the Macquarie University what's this all about lab yeah you know. I mean you probably could just no one would fund you but <laughs> 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 I mean there is a certain element to it you can kind of do it I mean one of the projects that I had in New Guinea you know, I was that effectively started from a paper from a, a taxonomist. He described a frog species in mm. New Guinea, and that frog species um, is really unusual because it, as a juvenile, it's it's black with yellow spots, but as adults, they range in they have uniform coloration and they range for sort of almost an apricot color to. Mm deep reds, browns. And there's a real dichotomy between the, the juveniles and adults. Mm. You know? And the first thing I would say about that too is that the fact that the taxonomists recognised that they were the same species in the first place yeah. was pretty amazing to consider. <laughs> you know, that, that in itself, because they look totally different. Um, and so why that's unusual is because a lot of that's, it, it's almost unprecedented really in, in frogs and a lot of other animals that you would actually get coloration in the juveniles and not in the adults, or it's usually the, the other way around. Um, and that that was kind of an exploration trip because I got some funding to look at why it is potentially why this might be happening. And they're found only in a cloud forest 
at the top of a mountain in the middle of an island in the Luasade Archipelago. And now if you look at New Guinea, New Guinea kind of tapers down to the to the east to a point. Mm. Um, and from that point, if you go south from there, there's a series of islands, and that's the Luasade um, Archipelago. And so Sedesta Island, which they found on, is the second last island in that chain. So it's a really remote place. Mm. And in actual fact, once you get to Port Moresby, it takes around six days to get to the field site. <laughs> and that involves, you know, flying in an aeroplane and, and going in a, a dinghy for a day or so and, and then hiking up into to the mountain to actually get to this field site. Mm. And I remember when I was there, <laughs> the, it was great because I kind of felt like I'd stepped back in time because uh, the villagers kind of helped us take, well, helped me take stuff up the mountain. And so mm. I had all these people carrying pots and pans and things like the, <laughs> like the, the hunters of the, I don't know, 1940s or something like that. <laughs> and, um, and the point I'm kind of making is that that whole thing is an adventure. It's a, it yeah. is an expedition to actually go somewhere where very few people have actually been. Like I was the first person, well, I'm not entirely sure, but certainly one of the first people to actually camp at the top of that mountain. Mm. Um, and it's the first time the villagers had ever, actually, any of the villagers had ever stayed up there. Um, <laughs> and they froze, poor things. Um, <laughs> ended up giving, <laughs> if, you, if you'd went up there, if you'd been there, <laughs> you would have seen me and three three locals that were helping me all dressed in my clothes <laughs> because I didn't have enough clothes and jacket and jumpers and <laughs> that's great <laughs> yeah um, yeah and you know and I didn't even know if I'd be able to find the frogs either that was the other thing you know yeah. so because there wasn't much known about them so the the trip that had been before the the researchers had sat down the bottom of the mountain. And they'd sent the um, the locals up to collect frogs for them, and they would then preserve them and identify and so on mm. down the base. So they hadn't actually visited the location where the frogs were. And when I first got there, the locals said, oh, you're never going to find these. It's crazy. <laughs> We've hardly ever seen them kind of thing. But we ended up finding them, you know. Mm. We found them in a spot and were able to, to do some stuff with them. And... So there's a whole adventure associated with that. And there are research avenues to be able to explore those. Mm. Um, in that case, there's an extra leverage because they're found in cloud forests. Um, mm. And we all know that, well, it's predicted anyway, that a lot of the cloud forests that we have today, they're, they're in real strife with the issue with climate change coming through. Mm. And some of those habitats are probably not going to exist for yeah. too much longer. And, you know, what happens to those animals? They can't kind of climb higher. Yeah, yeah. Top of the mountain, that's it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of one example of being able to do some kind of research to that extent. And there's a lot of researchers that sort of do what other people might think is fairly crazy. Um, <laughs> actually go out there and do that kind of thing. Um, I guess it's just that reality of convincing people to fund it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and when you're doing yeah, something yeah. like that... Yeah, whoever's funding it has to accept a certain level of risk. Oh yeah, yeah, and there's there's a lot of risk, you know, doing research in New Guinea because there's trying to um, logistically it's actually quite a challenge to get the right people to help you and things like mm. that. Um, yeah, and ensuring you have collaborators that actually work effectively with you. It's a real challenge. The people carrying pots and pans, you mean? That were perfect. No, yeah. they were great. <laughs> they were awesome. collaborators. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, they were fantastic. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, felt, I, felt sli- I have to say, I felt slightly uncomfortable with the whole prospect of people carrying my water bottle for me. Yeah, um, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah you, you would feel like yes. the worst type of you know, old natural historian. Yeah. You know, let's yeah, get exactly. the locals to do the heavy lifting. <laughs> and it's really well, uncomfortable because you kind of, you know, I'm the, the white person in yeah. New Guinea. And I was like, this is really uncomfortable. I'm not sure this is the kind of thing. But but in that circumstance, you know, people want to, they're really social. They mm. want to be part of it. They want to be involved. And, you know, I, I give them some money to, 
to be involved in it as well. Um, and that's negotiated through the the chief, so you know, I have to do all this stuff, mm. talk to the chief and that. And also, you know, it, by doing those things too, a lot of the communities, you've got to find some way of contributing. Well, I, I feel very strongly about it anyway, to try and contribute a little bit to the community while you're there. So, you know, we, it's it can be kind of a token thing, but, you know, I gave some um, exercise books and pencils and um, yeah. things and that to the local school. I have a fantastic photo of the of me outside the school with all the kids. <laughs> and it was after hours as well. So I just expected to go and hand the stuff to the school teachers. And the mm. school teachers got so excited. They said, no, we need a photo. <laughs> and so they rounded up all the kids from their houses to come and get this photo after school. With their new pens. <laughs> with their, yeah, with their holding up all their books and pens. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're such a hero, Matt. My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> and what's, what, what's even funnier about it is that, you know, like I'm not that tall, but I look like a giant <laughs> on side of them. Because <laughs> they're not that big. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's kind of good. Kind of, uh, I idolize old school naturalists as being able to do these sort of expeditions. Oh, man. And come yeah. back from them. And yep. have them, you know, pay back the service by just telling neat stories and being interesting characters yeah. and sharing yeah. the wonders of the world and nature. Well, I wish that was still a thing. So do I. <laughs> and I can just, you know, say to someone, fund me to go on this expedition to make me a more interesting character. Yep. And I'll, I'll regale you with stories <laughs> when I get back. <laughs> I mean, I guess that was well, that was the industry at the time. It was the curios. Well, and yeah, it was people the... like Alfred Wallace and my heroes. You know, they're, yeah. they're the kind of people that love this kind of stories that they they come with, yeah. and that concept of just going into the unknown and not really knowing much about it, and coming out with an amazing amount of knowledge and, in, and interesting yeah. observations that they've made. Yeah, it's cool. You know, like. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's, there is one thing, though, that I've kind of noticed. That there's a few journals that are starting to now bring back a format of natural history writing. Yeah. And we, we had one um, published last year. Um, and that was, that was pretty cool. And that was a, that was a story associated with um, Chrissy Painting. Mm-hmm. And her and her husband were going to a field site that, to look at these these great spiders that they're it's hard to describe but they're ant mimics in reverse so if you look at them from their their bottom to their head they right. actually look like an ant but if you look from their head to the bottom they look like a spider so their, their bum looks like an ant head yeah and they've got these long longer spinnerets than normal mm. and they hold one pair of them upright so they're kind of like false antennae <laughs> um, and they we kind of hypothesizing that they they do a lot of um, abdomen movement and we're kind of suggesting that maybe that movement is, is trying to attract your attention to look at them from the, the bottom mm. to the head view and so yeah I mean the story really came about um, when Chrissy and Caleb her husband they were trying to go to a field site and there was a mudslide that stopped them from getting to the field site <laughs> and so they went oh, alright well maybe we could just um give up for the day and we'll get our binoculars out and go and look at some birds and uh and they said oh hang on we'll just go and have a look at this bush and they they found these spot they found the spiders and they were looking at them and they they observed the the spider from sitting on a a leaf and it was it looked like it was guarding nectaries um so these are the extra floral nectaries that you find on plants so in theory plants have these little little nectaries little sweet let's have a little sweet um, morsel of food in there um, and it's supposed to attract ants mm-hmm. and by attracting ants the plant kind of gains protection um, from herbivores that might yeah. try and eat the plants and so these spiders which you know not typically known um, there are lots of spiders that do feed on nect- nectar um, a lot of people don't know that but they do but what was kind of cool is that they'd feed on it and then they put some silk over the... would appear to be putting silk over the nectary. Oh. 
And so they looked like they were protecting. And so you'd see some big ants come along and they try to access the nectary and they couldn't, they couldn't get to it. Mm. And so the, 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 our publication was really sort of a natural history account of this whole thing. And it really yeah. does start the, the old type format yeah. of telling the story. That you know they were trying, we trying to get to the field site, but there was a mudslide, you know? <laughs> and and it was great, and it's really freeing that kind of writing style to be able to. Yeah, it's more engaging, um, more storytelling. Yeah, and it's uh, I know Ethology is the other journal that's yeah they've just started back. to bring it. Yeah, I think it's important that it's there because I mean that's what yeah. Ethology is supposed to mean, right? It's the yeah, observations of animal behavior. Yeah, and it's really important for. Scientists, because our currency now is paper publishing. Yeah. And if we are able to publish observations and wicked tales of stuff we get up to, <laughs> then it, it it allows us to do that without falling into the trap of you know, the publisher perish type of model. And yeah, that's right. And is no, I guess one of the things that's not I don't think is recognised as much by not actually having those kind of formats, is that one of the things that really engages public in science, especially in our field, uh, are documentaries. You know, yeah. like the, the amount of impact that a David Annabra documentary has had on well, most of us inspiring us, but also just the general public educating yeah. what's going on. They're really j- just telling the stories that so- of observations that scientists have made yeah you know that's that's the one thing you know the content they they have is only as good really as as what scientists have actually found yeah um so i think that's not really considered as much i don't think um the importance of that because if you don't have public interest in in science at all then you're not going to get any funding to do it Mm. i mean it's an important thing because it's public need to realize the value of what we try and do um and hopefully they they understand and hopefully we're doing something that they want to be they want they want to be interested in Um, and that really aligns with i guess the whole reason i'm doing in situ science stuff because there are human stories behind Mm. scientific discoveries yeah. that we never get to hear. You know, you read your newspaper article about this amazing <laughs> discovery that was made. Yeah. You don't hear that it, you know, was made by a, a woman who had three kids while she was collecting the data and it took her 10 years. <laughs> That's and, right. And, you know, she got divorced in the middle of that. And, or, you know, <laughs> That's and right. the reason yeah. that the data was collected at these intervals was because, yeah. you know, that was when her kids went to sleep or something, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, and the, <laughs> and the segment that'll be in the documentary might be, you know, a minute and a half long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For the amount of effort it took to actually get that information. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you hear the little tidbit of information, you go, oh, that's cool. Yeah. And you move on. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you don't realize how much work's gone into it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> nor the failed experiments up to that point too yeah one day i want to publish in the journal of negative results because i think i've done a lot of stuff yeah i've got plenty plenty for that too (laughs) it should be a journal of failed experiments so you didn't even really get results (laughs) (laughs) yeah my methods were i was going to sample for six weeks the field station caught on fire in week two that's right this is what we're going to do (laughs) Didn't you have a cyclone affect one of yours? I got a paper on that. Yeah, that's right. good. Yeah. Post-cyclone recovery of pregnant <laughs> populations. <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing, you know, science is opportunistic. You know, the way we write papers, yeah. it's as if, oh, this is what I set out to test. This is how I plan to do it all along. Oh, yeah. But really, yeah. it's... It's a lot of it's not it, making it up as you go along, but you have a limited very, amount of resources. It's, it's iterative. I mean, you can have anything in your brain about how you think it's going to work. Yeah. And nine out of ten times, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. And so then you have to readjust how to do it. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things with it's worth sort of noting is that animal behaviour is actually one of one of the more difficult disciplines to actually do 
in terms of experiments. Because animals don't behave Because like animals should. don't behave, yeah. And it's kind of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you want to you wanna do experiments in the lab and that because it's kind of more convenient to be able to do that. Yeah. But the animals don't behave like they do when they're wild, do they? So, I mean, <laughs> you've got to then try and do it in the, the wild and it's not that easy because the animals don't always appear when you want them to appear <laughs> or do the thing that you want them to do. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it takes... It's quite creative... It's a very creative discipline mm. in trying to either recreate the environment to make to, to get the animals to, to act like they would normally do, mm. and yeah, you know, some of us are better than others at doing that. But yeah, you know, creating whole habitats in your lab yeah, out yeah. of crumpled paper and <laughs> pieces of bark and <laughs> yeah, it yeah. looks interesting on a research budget. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Need to buy six kilos of yeah. So they talk dirt. about. You know, geography being a colouring in. Well, animal behaviour is arts and crafts. That's uh, <laughs> what it's about. So, <laughs> their famous uh, Stephen Fry quote: you know, "I think animal testing is a terrible idea. Animals get nervous and give all the wrong answers." <laughs> Essentially, what we do—I mean, they're not giving the wrong answers. That we're they're giving the right answers, but we're asking the wrong questions. Well, let's, let's face it. the animals really have attitudes. That's the real. <laughs> you know, if you, you get taken out of your environment, you probably don't want to act this, the right way anyway, do you? So, <laughs> do you blame them really? <laughs> and with the animals that you tend to work on, like you said, there are things that nobody else has ever worked on before. Yeah. yeah. How do you even know what to ask in that case? Well, that's a good question. My PhD was was based on a natural history um, observation yeah. from the early 1900s. Mm. And so it was based around this, um, it was a cool, ent- well, I like to think he was a cool entomologist, so I don't really know that much about him. <laughs> he but could have been a woman only yeah, yeah, bastard. Yeah, who knows, yeah. <laughs> um, and his name was Edward Yakusum, and he was in uh, Indonesia, and he was on the way to, um, he's on the way to go to a local spring, Mm. So he's going for a swim or something. <laughs> and he looks down at the ground and he sees these little little bugs interacting with some ants. And what he witnessed um, was these ants interacting with these yellow tufts of hair, he called them. Um, and through their interaction, they would fall down on the ground and look like they were knocked out or dead. Mm. And, and so they, these ants... These animals are collectively known as the feather-legged assassin bugs. It's Best a very complicated. Yeah, it's really hard to say actually. So, I like the shorten. I shorten the version to flabs. I think that's. A, I think what they should be called. Um, <laughs> and so, it really that kind of started from that. And I knew that uh, you know I'd come across an Australian species uh, through my work at the museum, mm. and. And so I thought, oh, they'd be kind of cool to do some work on. But the thing was, I didn't really know really where to find them or whether I could find them in big numbers and things. So the mm. first part of my PhD was actually just trying to find them. Mm. And uh, effectively, I looked up some records online um, in the databases, and then I would just drive around the country trying to find a spot <laughs> where I might find them. Um, and that's where we... I ended up here in, in Oberon, um, which is where we're currently sitting at the moment. <laughs> um, yeah, and I remember sort of just going to the site. And it's, it's all about timing too because these animals only come out during the day in the mornings mm. in the afternoon. So if I'd come like in the middle of the day, I would never have seen them. I would not have <laughs> found this site. Yeah. But this site has actually got a lot of them. Um, and so I, I, I saw them and I went, oh, that's exciting. That's great. But the big thing about it was that um, what wasn't known is that the juveniles actually do something different. And I was, I'm the first person to have actually witnessed it. Mm. And the first day that I saw it, I was so excited. <laughs> I was just beside myself because I knew that you know this was the first time this had ever been observed. Yeah. And, I, and this moment was the first time. And just justify your whole existence. Yeah, that's right. And then I had to try, you know, write a project about it. It was kind of like, but isn't this enough? <laughs> I can take happy yeah, yeah, That's right. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so, these ones do luring behaviour. So they have fluffy legs, 
So yeah. say, let, let's paint a picture. They're a, yep. they're a bug. They're that's on right. tree trunks. On tree trunks. That's right. They're brown. Uh, well, not brown. Come uh, on. That's, that's a bit rough. <laughs> um, they're grey. Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, adults are orange, so okay. that's a little bit more. But yeah. Um, <laughs> but they have big fluffy legs. They have big fluffy legs. So if you can imagine, say, Donald Trump's hairstyle <laughs> covered over someone's hind legs, a little bit like that. <laughs> and, uh, and so they would sit on the side of a tree, and as ants come up the tree, um, they wave at them. With their fluffy legs. With their fluffy legs. Yeah. Yeah. And so in Australia, we have a lot of ants that are really, uh, like, ant predators are very visually receptive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've all grown up with them. Um, bull ants, for instance, you know, they'll follow yeah. you around and chase you down the street. <laughs> and uh, so they're quite receptive to it. So they see the movement and they think it's something good to attack. And so they will they will deviate off their path and they attack the legs. And what's really unusual about this predator, it's the only predator that doesn't attack until its prey actually attacks it first. And you consider right. that's quite a dangerous thing to do yeah. because you get damaged by a prey, especially yeah. if it's a bull ant. You know, it's, it's got insects, specific venom and everything. So what they do is they then grab that leg and at the point of grabbing the leg, um, the ant's committed and the bug does this amazing acrobatic move Mm. Um, and gets it itself in a position that it can attack the ant from behind and, and stabs it in the head. Uh, so, so it's, it's doing like a judo sort of move. It's doing a judo move, yeah. It's twisting around its back. And yeah, and because it's the, the only, what's kind of cool is that the only limitation really to them being successful using this strategy is if they can reach the neck or not. Mm. So you can have the really small nymphs, they can be, you know, you can have... Um, ants that are up to, you know, five times the size of the bug that it can take down using a strategy. <laughs> so it's a pretty effective. So they rodeo ride the back of the ants, you know, as they kind of do. And and so, yeah, that my that had never been observed. And, and there's only one other known terrestrial invertebrate that's, well, land-based invertebrate that um, has any kind of luring of, of the same, of a similar manner, mm-hmm. so, um, so yeah, it's quite a, a, a big finding. And the other thing I really love about this particular animal is that I'm one of the few researchers that can go to their field site and convince themselves that their study animal is happy to see them because <laughs> because they wave at you, they wave at you as they come towards the tree. <laughs> And it's delightful. You, know, you just feel like you haven't been away for a while and they recognize you and they feel <laughs> welcoming you home and it's great. It's adorable. <laughs> but they really are assassin bugs. They, they grapple yeah. their prey and stab them in the back That's of the neck. That's right, exactly. And... Yeah, so they all look, you know, harmless and happy and go Larry, but they're actually quite an amazing predator. So the juveniles are doing the misdirect twist and stab. Yep. What are the adults doing? So the adults, um, they, they do a little bit of leg waving, but as soon as the ant touches them, they actually raise up on their hind legs and they have this really big gland uh, on their chest. And that corresponds to that yellow tuft hair that I was talking about earlier that Edward Yuckerson Mm -hmm. described. And, the it's got a s- couple little grooves in there that are perf- perfectly placed for ant mandibles to insert in. So the the ants actually grab that around that gland structure. And so what happened? Hap- their little insect sternum almost. So it's picture that a bit. Yeah. So oh, not that they have a sternum. But no. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um. I don't know. Imagine that you've got a cup with two handles. <laughs> yeah, and you insert your hand into those handles to hold it, right? Okay. So it's kind of it's, it's like that, right? There's a bit All of right, a groove yeah, in there. Got it. All right. So the mandibles fit into that that little area, and so of course at that point um, it's perfectly placed because they're sitting right below the mouth parts of the bug, mm. and so their their neck is exposed to then be stabbed. 
Now, what's not clear with ours is um, because they're on the side of a tree, it's not clear whether they do actually produce a chemical that knocks the ant out um, as severely as what's been described um, for, the, for the other species. And then since it's a bit of a risky thing if they did anyway, because being on the side of a tree, if they drop the ant that falls on the ground, then their food's gone. Yeah. So, but it certainly seems to appease them. So the ant kind of quietens down. Um, so yeah, they've got a, a different strategy. Um, so again, that comes back to that idea of animals having different strategies at well, different stages. Uh, look at that, we've come full circle. Yeah. <laughs> so why would uh, this particular animal have different strategies throughout its life? It's like, why aren't the adults just doing the jump and twist and grab thing? Well, all right. Coming up with a hypothesis right on the spot here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Heard it here first. All right. So what, what does happen in these cool uh, animals is that they can regenerate their legs and hairs different molting stages mm-hmm. so they might have like they have five instar and so they molt to go up each stage yeah and if you actually shave the legs which we have done <laughs> uh, which is quite a skill to do shaving micro legs uh, <laughs> if you shave the legs um, and they go through the next stage the hairs come back yeah, so they shed their skin and the new skin yeah. has their hairs back. Yeah. That's great. So which is cool. So it means that when they're being attacked by the ants, there's some kind of abrasion that would happen through mm. the interaction. So they may damage those hairs. So you'll see some of the, the nymphs will have some damaged hairs. Yeah. But that's not so much of a cost if you can regenerate them the next stage. Yeah. But as an adult, that's your last stage. You yeah. can't regenerate them at that point. So just relying on those leg hairs may be an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also there may be an issue around the size of the ant. Um, so the adult strategy uh, potentially allows them to eat bigger ants um, to be a bit more selective on what ants they're going to eat. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Whereas the other strategy is kind of whatever ant grabs it, yeah. it'll, it'll have a go at it. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, there's some some of the ideas. The other one is that not this has been published, and no one's no one's listening to this, is they? So yeah, no, no, no one's. Mum <laughs> listens to it. Oh, good. Hey, all right. Oh, she's all right then. Uh, <laughs> hi, mum. Um, so, so yeah, there is there is a group of ants that um, the bugs don't like. Uh, so there's there's a series of ants that do. Generally, it's ants that do what they call spread eagled hunting technique. <laughs> You're going to have to explain this yeah. one. <laughs> so this is where they get... There'll be an ant individual will come and it'll find some prey mm-hmm. and it'll attack it and that prey will start moving and then it sends out a chemical to its mates and they all come to help out. Mm-hmm. And usually things like, um, say... Uh, Katie did or grasshopper or something like that what they do is they each take hold of some appendage so they take hold of legs and antennas and any extremity and they pull it out <laughs> as far as they can and then they just spray it with uh, acetic acid <laughs> and it's a nasty way to go so there's a whole bunch of ants that do it is this um, the technique is bread eagle the technical term or is this just yeah. Like, okay <laughs> yeah, yeah it's a technical term yeah look it up <laughs> Um, <laughs> the, the rack and pinion yeah. predation technique. <laughs> and so what I've what I've observed here is the the bugs will actually wave at everything. Doesn't matter what it is. Mm. And and the next thing they'll tend to do is that if they get touched by a particular ant, because this is what they do with some ants, they get touched by them. They accelerate their waving, mm. and so they do this thing that's kind of like a, aggressive. They bombard the ant to they agitate them in such a way that makes them want to attack. So that happens with some ants. They're not visually receptive. Yeah. And, but with these particular ones that do spread eagle technique, they, as soon as they get touched by them, they actually stop. And they tuck their legs in. Mm. Um, and then they just don't move. So they have the little ant just interacting with it. And then it gets bored and walks off. And then the, the bugs will then walk away. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, they, they 
um, where did we start? I can't remember where we started. The, the, <laughs> the ants that the bug doesn't yeah. like oh, to yeah. eat. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's, there's just some. So I think the adults, um, by not actually relying on the, the movement of the legs as much, mm. may not be as agitated by them as, as much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it precludes them because they can't, once the bug stands up, those ants can't actually grab onto it because they don't have mandibles big enough to be able oh, to, okay. to get on the groove. Yeah. Yeah. So. So, and you were up here in Oberon now filming their behavior. Well, attempting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, it's, you know, so it's, it's an adventure, right? Yeah. <laughs> we come out and see what we can do in the field. <laughs> I love going to my site anyway. It's just, it's just a really lovely place. Yeah, there's lots of birds and other wildlife and yeah yeah it's a nice little escape well I, I feel like since we've come full circle and uh since we we're starting to get eaten by mosquitoes I'm not wrong <laughs> it's a good time to wrap up I the think, podcast i think i've lost about 10 liters i, know. <laughs> I feel a lot of smacking the things i do for in situ science <laughs> oh, <thanks for> <laughs> If people want to find out more about uh, your research in conflict ecology, you have a website, your That's lab true. website. I do. Which is? Conflictecology.com. Great. And you're on Twitter? Oh, I believe I am. Yes. And my handle is <laughs> capital M, capital B, and it's M. Bulbert. M. B. Albert. Yep. M. B. Albert. That's correct. <laughs> All right. Well, that was great. And I didn't even get to ask about you turning up to a random uh, rhino sanctuary and asking for something to do, <laughs> which means we're going to have to do another one of these podcasts one day. <laughs> All right, you're on. We didn't, even, we didn't even talk about our wonderful Night of Illusions event either. Ah, uh, no. Well, yeah. we'll, we'll yeah. start for a couple of months where we can do yeah. a, a promo. All right, sounds good. We'll give a little juicy dangler now <laughs> about a regional Night of Illusions. That's right. We're going to the country. <laughs> but, you know, we'll <laughs> give you more details city. later on. <laughs> All right, well, let's book it in. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks so much right. for doing this, Matt. No worries, thank you. It was thanks, good. Thanks for listening, guys. Check us out at insituscience.com. We're at insituscience on social media. Subscribe, drop us a review, check out the YouTube channel, all that stuff, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.